But some of us may have wondered already, especially if you're a bit younger and, and still figuring out what all you believe. You may have wondered before, is this just a Mennonite thing? Is this something the Anabaptists came up with and, and still do to this day? Why don't we see more of the church at large practicing this? Uh, well, also within our own culture, Mennonite culture, we, we see the abandoning of the practice over time. Um, I have family, quite a bit of relatives, quite a few relatives that no longer practice this. Maybe they grew up with it. Uh, the next generation no longer practices it. So we've seen that quite, quite uh, close by to us as well. I'm sure there's various reasons for, for no longer practicing this. I would say probably there, there may be some cases where the, the practice is lost because a woman has left the faith. And she's now living for sin. That may, be a, that may be a case. But I think most times when it is abandoned, it's still the person is not leaving the faith. They still profess Christianity, but they, they abandon the practice. So that brings some questions up for me. Why, why does it become something that no longer happens? Or why is it not valued? And most times, and you probably have friends or family that, that are Christians that don't practice this, they may say it's not necessary, or maybe it was cultural. There's different reasons for that. But I, as I was thinking where to go with this this morning, my intention this morning is actually not specifically to talk about the practice of the veiling. Uh, that's, that's down the road. Because there's some underlying uh, truths or there's some underlying foundational things that need to be established, I believe, before we even talk about the symbolism of, of the veiling. But first of all, I do want to address a couple of reasons that, that you may have other ones. These are ones that came to my mind, but it maybe would help us think about why do we need to, why do we need to talk about this? A uh, couple of reasons for abandoning this practice. Number one, I have is a lack of teaching on the principles behind it. And I think this can be true of, of so many things in our, in our culture, in our Christian culture, in our Mennonite or Anabaptist culture. There are many long-standing practices. And over time, if the principle behind those practices is not understood or it's not passed on to our children, then it simply becomes a practice that has no value. And so I believe maybe one reason for abandoning the headship veiling is simply a lack of teaching, a lack of understanding. Um, I've, sadly, I've heard it um, defended, and I'm not, I'm not pointing fingers at anybody, whether it's Amish or Mennonite or whatever your background is, but I've heard it defended as, well, it's something our church does. Well, if that's the only reason, I'm sure at some point the argument will come up, well, why doesn't your church just change that? If it's just something your church does and it's just something cultural, why do you still do it? So that may be one thing. We don't understand the principle or the meaning behind this. Another reason, possible reason is lifestyle and conduct that don't complement the practice. And what do I mean by that? I can think of one, one situation where I've observed this, but I don't know that I've seen it anywhere else. And, and in, in practice in general, uh, it seems like, and I never liked saying this when I was younger. I never liked this reasoning. But if you take this step, you know, here's the inevitable, you know, here's where it leads. You know, you, you, you change your style of veiling, and here's the path that you go down. I never liked that reasoning, and yet there is some truth with it. Um, I have, I think I've seen this with one of my own relatives. 
uh, a woman that she, wear, she was wearing pants and a shirt and a head covering. Rarely, I don't know that I've ever seen that elsewhere. Rarely do you see that. So my point in this, lifestyle and conduct that don't complement the practice. It seems like when you, when you lose some other principles, it's just so easy, just the veiling goes with it because there's something that doesn't go together. And, and let, me, let me give you one other illustration here. So I, I was, I've been listening to a testimony of a man and his wife who were on a spiritual journey. And as they didn't know any Mennonites, they didn't know any, any Anabaptists, and as they were they, be, they became Christians. They were part of a group that was, I don't know if it was a gang or what it was, but it was, it was they were not likely Mennonites, or they're not Mennonite today, but they were not likely to come to some of these beliefs. But they started searching the scriptures. They became converted. They became born again. And then they encountered 1 Corinthians 11. And they're like, well, what do we do with this? What in the world is this? We don't see this anywhere being practiced. Finally, they decided, well, if it's what the Bible says, we need to do it. And so the man's wife, she started covering her head just with some kind of a, uh, I don't know what she used, some kind of a cloth. And he gave an incident. It was something that shocked them, but it speaks a little bit into um, what, what this does. And I'm not quite sure that I understand this whole experience here. So he said, they were young in the faith, they were immature, and one time they got into an argument and a fight as husband and wife. I don't think they had children yet. And they were just going, after, going at each other. And in the middle of that, he said his wife yanked the veiling or the covering off her head in the middle of this argument. And later, it, it startled them both. There was something about the behavior that they were engaged in that didn't match. Even intuitively, she knew I can't be arguing and fighting and have this on my head. So my point is, there are things I, th- I think that go along with the practice that somehow we don't maybe always understand it, but, but they don't quite match up. Just think, think about that for what it's worth. Another possible reason for abandoning the headship veiling is because of a gradual assimilation into contemporary rather than historical Christian practice. Uh, like this couple that I was just describing to you, they looked around and didn't see it practiced anywhere. And so they could have, in their journey, assumed that, well, Clearly, that's not what the Bible means because I don't see it happening anywhere else. So by contemporary Christian practice, I mean if we look at Christianity as it's seen in today's world alone, if, if we would simply go by expressions of Christianity today in the world, whether it's in America, whether it's across the globe, we would probably say, well, obviously God didn't mean that because no one's doing it. Very few people are doing it. That could be another reason is, is we assume that what is today in the church is the norm, rather than looking into history and realizing, no, this has been something from all the way back. And then a fourth possible reason for abandoning is it's viewed as a barrier to bringing people into the church, or it's not relevant. Somehow, this is too hard of a practice. How are people ever going to come into the church if we require them to have a veiling? So, you may have some of your own reasons, um, I put these out there just to get you to start thinking about, I don't want this, this approach and, and, the, and the things that I want to teach this morning and, may, and maybe in the future, I don't want us to have to be somehow on the defensive and say, all right, we have this practice, now let's somehow defend this. I think it's something beautiful. And I think the Bible has some, has some underlying truths for this, this, not just for the practice, but for headship order, that if we get those, we understand that God 
um, has a picture that he, ha- he would like to display to the world. It's interesting that just last evening, so I was talking to my wife about what I've been thinking about. I've been, I've been thinking about this subject actually for a couple of months and wasn't sure when I wanted to tackle it. But we were talking about this last evening and we decided to kind of late go get a, go get a bite to eat. So we, we went off and went to a restaurant and it was interesting. We walked up to the counter of this restaurant and the first, about the first thing, the woman behind the counter, she looked at my wife and she said, she said, oh, I love your shawl. And, and I forget what question she asked next, but it led into my wife saying, well, this is actually something I wear because of what the Bible teaches. And she just gave a brief um, description of that. And then the lady's response was, oh, I'm sorry. And she thought she was being offensive. And my wife said, no, that's absolutely fine. There's nothing to, nothing to apologize for. And I thought, you know, it, it's interesting, the reactions uh, when people associate that with, they associate it with something. Now, she didn't initially see it as a symbol of anything. But when my wife explained what it was, she didn't want to be offensive. And, but then at the end, we were there for about 30 minutes. And then as we left, she said, have a blessed night. I thought, well, that's, that's interesting. Years ago, I, I heard a, uh, a sermon on Christian woman's veiling by, by Melvin Lehman. It's probably been 20 years ago. And we were actually out at Faith Builders visiting somebody and were there on a Sunday morning. And I never forgot one of the comments he made about what does, what does the Christian woman's, woman's veiling, what does it express? And I remember he, he mentioned that there's two things, and I, didn't, I don't really have a scriptural principle for this, but there's some truth to it, even based on our experience last night with this, with this lady. He said there's two things that happen when a, when a woman walks down the street with her head covered, it... it it proclaims two things to those who look on. And some may not make the connection that it's a Christian thing, but he says it makes, two, it makes two statements. One is, there is a God, and number two, there are people who serve him. That may be a fleeting thought. It may not even be a conscious thought, but the visible sign communicates something. So think about that. Put that in the back of your mind as well. I think the symbolism of, of the veiling is quickly lost when this principle is not understood, or maybe more importantly, when it's not lived out, when there are inconsistencies there. But underneath all this is God's headship order. Sometimes you've heard this described as a prayer veiling. I'm not sure that's, that, that's wrong to call it that. I don't believe that's specifically what it is. It does have to do with prayer, but it is a sign of, of God's headship order. Uh, open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to only look at the first three verses there this morning. I want to say I believe it's important that we find our place in God's order, whether you are a man or a woman. It is so important that we find our place in God's order so that we can be grounded and be confident in the place God has put us. I know sometimes people... Maybe our guard comes up. I think, I think it's maybe because of our culture, our, our broader um, Western culture. Our guard can come up when we start talking about things like authority and headship. The guard comes up. Why is that? Well, probably because often authority is viewed as, as coercive, heavy-handed, um, abusive. Those things can all be true. So our guard can come up when we talk about things like authority or headship. 
What do we mean by headship? Are we saying that men are, are above women? I'm not saying that hasn't happened, but is that God's design? It's not his design. I want to I show that uh, to you this morning. This principle of headship is not something just for women. This is not just to indicate where women are supposed to be in the, in the, in the order. There's much greater weight placed on the men in Scripture. We're going to see that this morning. So men, I've heard it said before, our men are almost apologetic that the women have to carry the, the weight of this responsibility. They're the vis- they have the visible sign. They dress modestly. Well, men, it's time for us to step up to the plate, all right? We have a responsibility as well. Rather than being apologetic that our women carry this, then let's be the kind of men that step up that our women want to follow. That's the kind of leadership God's going to be, that, that he calls us to. Women do not have to bear this uh, responsibility of displaying God's order alone. It's not just for women in the church. We need to be men of courage and conviction And we need to be just as unashamed to be identified as followers of Christ. It is very easy for us as men to blend in to our society and never be noticed. But our women, they carry that visible sign. So, can we be that? 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I'd like to, uh, I'm going to read the first three verses here. It says, Be followers of me even as, as I also am of Christ. Now I praise you, brethren, that ye remember me in all things and keep the ordinances as I delivered them to you. But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. We're going to stop with that. I'm not going to go any further in this passage today, because from here on it starts talking about the symbol. But underlying this symbol is, is order. He uses the word three times here. The head of every man is Christ. You have Christ, you have the man, you have the woman, but then over all this is God. Clearly, there is an order. This order does not come about by coercion. God does not have his thumb down on Christ. Christ does not have his thumb down on man, and man does not have his thumb down on woman. It is nothing about suppression. It's nothing about coercion, but it is about order, and it's about a a line of authority. We don't have to apologize for that. So, the question, or maybe not the question, it's pretty straightforward in the text. Verse 3, he starts by saying, the head of every man is Christ. The head of the woman is the man. So, it's not a question of, hey, it'd be a great idea if the men were the head of the woman. No, he's saying it is. So, the question is, what kind of a head is he? All right, God already established the order. So, it's not, are you, are you the head as men? But what kind of a head are you? And Scripture gives us, we're not going to be able to cover it all this morning. Scripture tells us very clearly how that attitude is. And it goes way back to how Christ is with his father, how, how the father was to his son. You see that, you see all this embodied in the Trinity. So it's, it's very clear what, what that's supposed to look like. So let's just establish, headship is God's design. It's not a matter of, if it's a matter of what kind or what kind of a head are you. For a foundation for this, I believe we need to actually go back to Genesis. I'd like for you to turn over to Genesis chapter 2. This is where we first see God bringing order. 
Uh, I'm going to read about the first nine verses here in Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 1, it says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God ended his work which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because that in it he had rested from all his work which God created and made. These are the generations of the heavens and of the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And every plant of the field before it was in the earth, and every herb of the field before it grew. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was not a man to till the ground. But there went up a mist from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the it formed. And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. I'm going to stop there. I read basically to show God had a very specific way of creation, of doing creation. He had an order in which he created things. And after he had created all that, he, he stands back, he rests, he enjoys the work of his hands and of his, of, of his spoken word. And it says that everything was there. The plants were there. It was watered. It was supplied. God made all these things grow out of the ground. And in the middle of this beautiful garden, he puts several trees. He puts two trees, two choices. A tree of life where man could live perpetually, keep on living forever. And a tree of knowledge of good and evil. It was a, it was a knowledge that was kept from man to this point. So God makes all this provision. He creates a very clean and clear order. Now jump down to verse 15. So this is what God's provided. Now 15, it says, And the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. So God places Adam, the first man in this garden, with the responsibility, take care of the land, dress it, do whatever it takes to make this flourish. And the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a help meet for him. And out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And Adam gave names to all cattle and to the fowl of the air and to every beast of the field, but for Adam, there was not found a help meet for him. I, I like this story. So Adam's he's seeing all of God's creation, and, and the animals are passing by, and, and Adam in all his wonder, and I don't know how he named them, but he, somehow he had a vocabulary to say, you know, whoa, this thing's got like a long trunk and, you know, big leg, and so, you know, elephant or whatever it was. So all these animals start going through, and Adam in all his wonder, and then he starts to notice that they're in pairs. There's a male and there's a female. And as they go by, and Adam starts to realize, now wait a minute. Where, what about me? I'm just imagining a little bit what he was thinking. Like, where's, where's my half? Like, what's going on here? And yet God did it in an order. He, he, I think he let Adam feel the need. He let him realize, Adam, you're alone. This is lonely. Look at what, every, look at what the animals have. 
Verse 21, and the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made a woman and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. So at this point, you have a well-ordered creation. You have a man who's lonely, and God steps in, and out of man, out of his side, he creates a helper, a suitable companion. And here they are, both together, both created in the image of God. Eve is not an afterthought. She's part of God's original design, but God created this in a certain order, on purpose, and, and he brings her in to Adam. It says they were both unashamed. There was innocence there. God placed Adam where he wanted him. He gave him a specific role. Now, you have this whole perfect, perfect scenario, and then we know what happens next in Genesis chapter 3. It's, it's the fall of man. And I don't think I'm going to read it just for the sake of time. I might, I might uh, grab a few parts of this. So you know the story. The serpent comes, in, and I don't know how long this was after creation. I don't know if this was weeks, days, months, years. I don't know. But there they are in the garden. It says that the, the serpent, who is, who is very subtle, he came, and it's the devil. It's Satan. And it says he starts to tempt the woman. And he starts to question God. Did God really say this? And the serpent tells the woman that you're not going to die. In fact, you're going to become wise if you do this. Now, how, how attractive is that? It says that as Eve looked on in verse 6, uh, the, the, the serpent makes it sound to the woman as if God is withholding something good from you. Now, to this point, they have experienced goodness of God. They have walked in the garden. They've enjoyed the fellowship. They've enjoyed all that the garden has to offer so much goodness. And then here comes the serpent saying, God's holding out on you. You see, God doesn't want you to eat of that tree because he knows you're going to become like God. You're going to become wise. And so as Eve looks on and it says that the fruit looks so good and it, the desire to be wise seems so appealing, like, yeah, I want to have wisdom. She was deceived. She was pulled in. Now, it doesn't say where Adam is in this time. I don't know if it's unreasonable to assume that Adam is standing right there. I don't know. The Bible doesn't really tell us, but there's no intervention on Adam's part. If he's there, he does not intervene. But she becomes deceived, and she takes the fruit, and she takes a bite, and she takes it to Adam and gives him some to eat, which he knows this is forbidden, and it says, and he also took a bite. And then it says, and the eyes of them both were opened. So they saw the world through a lens of purity, of beauty, of innocence, of dependence on God, and all of a sudden, you see the world in a different way. And what came out of that? Fear. The first impulse is fear. And when they hear the voice of God, the voice that used to be such a comfort and the voice that used to invite them into, let's go on a walk, let's talk. Suddenly that voice 
was, was scary. And it says they went and they hid. And they tried to cover up their bodies. And to this point, there was no shame. Now they experienced shame. What a terrible fall. What a terrible fall it was. And this sense of shame caused them to try to clothe themselves. Later on, God clothed them because their efforts were inadequate. But I want you to notice what happens here next. Up to this point, we have seen God's order in creation. We've seen God's order of creating Adam first and then bringing Eve in as a helpmeet. And then, then fallenness happens. What does God do next? Verse 9, And the Lord God called unto Adam and said, Where art thou? It doesn't say that the Lord called unto Eve. Who sinned first? Eve sinned first. Who does God call out? He calls out Adam. Why is that? Why does God call out Adam? When God comes looking for someone to hold accountable for eating the fruit or for sin, he goes to Adam. And this is typical of Adam. Scripture describes the first Adam and the last Adam. We know that the first Adam is the man created. The first human was Adam. Uh, Adam is a type of Christ. Christ, when he comes later, he's called the last Adam. He's the one who brings redemption. But look at, look at the behavior of the first Adam. What does he do? When God comes and calls him into account and says, Adam, where are you? What does Adam do? He shifts blame. Remember, he's in his, this role of authority, this idea of headship. The first Adam likes to shift blame. He says, well, the, this woman, she gave me of the fruit. She's the one who brought it to me. In fact, it's not enough to just blame the woman for this. He says, the woman that you gave me. It's your fault, God. You gave me the woman, and now she gave me the fruit, and now I've sinned. And so we see in the first Adam, way back in the beginning, when God is first establishing this order, remember he says, you know, man should leave his father and mother, woman, man and wife come together. There's this, there's this new home. God has set this all up. And now when there's failure, now when there's sin, the temptation of, of the first, the original man is to say, not my fault, it's the woman, and, and you gave me this woman. It's your fault. Blame shifting. Rather than saying, God, I blew it, I, I sinned, shifting the blame. You see this pattern throughout the entire scriptures. You see this pattern in our own lives today. It is so I see myself in this so much. Why is it that as men, especially, it is so easy for us to blame other people for our mistakes? It is so easy for us to make excuses for bad behavior or bad reactions or whatever's going on in our lives. It's so much easier to point the finger and say, it's this person's fault. Who carries the weight in this order of headship? You see, when you translate this over into a marriage, headship is not the man coming home from work and sitting on the couch while his wife makes him a warm supper. And he is the man. He is the head of the home. And his children should all be able to gather around him and there should be a happy home and you know, the wife should have got all this. That's not, headship is not that. It's not this, author, this, this authority or this being served idea. Headship is actually the hard work of saying, I'm responsible for what's happening in the order where God has placed me. Adam should, the first, should have been the first one to raise his hand and say, hey, I'm responsible here. Because later in the New Testament it says, 
Eve was deceived, Adam was not deceived. Eve was drawn away by the devil. Adam just chose to do it. He was not deceived. He knew better. So what about in the home? The, the hard part of being the head. When things aren't working out in our homes or in our marriages, whose responsibility is it to raise their hand and say, I'll take some responsibility here? Whose responsibility is it to get up out of the chair and take responsibility for, for problems? Maybe it's problems with children. I've been guilty of this myself. I know sometimes our wives, they feel the weight of being in our home. And as, as men, it's easy for us to, to shift, say, well, you know, you're the one at home. You need to, you know, you, got, you should have been doing this, this, and this, and then this would have been your outcome. Is that being a godly head? I heard uh, a quote by, by John Piper. Many of you know who John Piper is. And he was talking about this concept of, of husbands being the head of their home. And it kind of goes back to the idea of, of Adam and not taking responsibility. But he says, he says, when there is disorder in the home, and that could be in the marriage, it could be in the family, but when there's disorder or when there's problems in the home and the Lord comes knocking on the door of that home, he's asking the question, is the man of the house at home? He's looking for the man. God comes to Adam and said, Adam, where are you? When there's issues in our own homes, God comes in a sense and knocks on the door of our homes and says, is the man here? Where's he at? What's going on here? Let's not be shifting the blame. What are some of the implications of this passage here in Genesis? So we see a creation order. We see a structure, and then we see fallenness come out of that. But if we're going to think about headship, going back to Genesis here, what are some of the, thing, what are some of the underlying foundational principles uh, to gather from this? These are a few as I, as I see them. And I would encourage you, I like to take notes. I know not everybody does, but the things I have to say here, it's some, of, some of it's my thoughts. I would encourage you to do your own digging. So as you hear things or as you see things in the scripture, you're like, I'm not sure about that. My goal is for us to, to have a foundation of understanding. And maybe you, you get there on a different route than I do, but if, if you hear something or, or something doesn't quite make sense to you, write it down. Study that. Bring it up. We can talk about it. God's creation, this is a principle or an implication of what we saw in Genesis. God's creation was well-ordered. Man and woman were given specific, distinct roles. All right, I don't think that's new to any of us. We see that in Genesis. We have a well-ordered creation. God does things. He puts the man uh, in a specific spot. He puts the woman there as a suitable helper. Now, maybe in a future message, I'd like to talk more about how that works in a marriage and in a home, but that's not for this morning. But this is just a foundational truth out of Genesis. The second one is, that's implied here, obedience to God's commands was essential for God's well-ordered creation to flourish. So God goes to great pains to make the creation as it was, and it was all supposed to work together. And as long as Adam and Eve were obedient to Christ, it could have, it could have main, they could have maintained that. So obedience to God's commands. Once they disobeyed, then chaos was introduced. That's when you start to see the brokenness coming into the world. Number three. The New Testament instructions on headship and authority, and that can be whether it's 1 Corinthians 11, uh, it's in 1 Timothy, it's in 1 Peter, 
and in Ephesians. There's at least, at least four different passages that I will refer to uh, throughout this, some of these messages here. But all of those, the New Testament instructions on headship and authority are anchored in the Genesis account of Adam and Eve. And here I'd like to uh, share a scripture in First Corinthians, or in, I'm sorry, First Timothy chapter two, eight to fifteen. This is a description of the role, some uh, the role of men and of women that we often refer to. But I, I'll, I'll show you why I'm why I'm using this here. It says, "I will there, I will therefore, that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. In like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel." with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broided hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but which becometh women professing godliness with good works. Let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. But I suffer not a woman to teach nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. For Adam was first formed, then Eve, And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. I'm not going to spend time necessarily talking about the rest of this passage. I simply wanted to point out that even in Paul, when when he references this, he goes back to Adam and Eve when he's talking about order here. Adam was, was first formed, then Eve, and then he says, Adam was not deceived, the woman was being deceived. And by the way, I know a passage like this when it says, let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. Our culture howls against something like this because it sounds suppressive. Let me, let me explain again this morning. I believe if we, if, we, if we catch what the scripture truly teaches, we understand this is not an order where men lord it over women or where women are inferior. That is not a correct understanding of God's order. So if this brings up a reaction in your spirit, let the women learn in silence. What's wrong with women? I can, I can hear the common objections that would come from our culture. Okay, we're in a very hot time in our, in our day and age. But understand, we don't have to apologize that God has order, he has authority, he has headship. Where we have to be careful is in how we, how we work that out. But I wanted to give you this scripture to point out that even in the New Testament, this idea points right back to Genesis of how God created order, order uh, Adam and Eve, and then he references how they fell. And then the fourth point I want to make here, another implication out of Genesis. The very nature of free will carried the eventual probability of man's fall into sin. You might argue with me on that point a little bit, and that's fine. Um, what I'm trying to get at here, I think it is easy for us to, to look back and say, well, Adam, Adam's the guy who blew it. If it hadn't been for Adam, we wouldn't have fallen this and we wouldn't have all this stuff. It's part of the risk God took in giving man free will. God could have created humans to be robots where we would always respond with obedience, where we would always do exactly what God wants. And God could have made a creation with humans that have no free will and they just always, God's ways always get done. But that's not the nature of God. 
Why would God take the risk of free will if he knew that the fall was going to happen? And was it not inevitable when you have free will? And the reason I make the statement that there was an eventual, even if, let's say, Adam had lived his whole life without falling, the fact that you have free will, I think it, we're safe in saying somebody somewhere would have made that choice. So we can blame Adam all day. We are, we are Adam. All of us are like the first Adam. We can't blame anyone else for that. But what's so astounding to me is that God thought that was worth it. God would give free will rather than having a creation where everybody just moves around and it all happens the way God's... What was the outcome God wanted? Did he want just a well-ordered creation that never goes awry? If that's the case, I wouldn't have, why, would he, why would he give free will? The reason why I think we can say that this was the eventual probability is because even, well, I assume it's prior to creation. I don't know when Lucifer fell, if that was post-creation or not. I'm not sure if, if we know that for sure. Maybe someone else has a theory on that. But we know that even in the perfection of heaven and in the presence of God, fallenness happened. Rebellion happened because the angels, too, had free will. They had the ability to choose, and some did. Lucifer said, I'm going to be like the Most High. He was lifted up in pride, and God cast him out and swept out many of, of the angels with him. So even in heaven, that choice of free will is exercised, and it, it, it leads to fallenness. The reason I think this is important, the reason I believe free will is important is, is we need to understand that the plan of redemption was not plan B. The fall in, in creation, Adam falling, God did not have to come up with another plan and say, whoa, this was not the way I had in mind. Let's now come up with a way to save man. Here's, here's how I know that. Ephesians chapter 1, 3 to 7. <clears throat> Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he has made us accepted in the beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace." All right, so he chose us before the foundation of the world. All right, so he already knew. And then he says he predestined us to adoption as sons. Now, adoption means that you were not a son, and then you are. That's what happens in adoption. Parents go and they say, I want to adopt a child because this child is not mine. I adopt them so that they are mine. So already before the foundation of the world, and even at the end it says that we would have redemption. Before the foundation of the world, God already knows there has to be redemption. Because if he's going to offer free will, someone's going to choose sin. Someone is going to make a choice. And so, looking back at Adam, I, want to, I think it's important for us to realize that every one of us is Adam. At our base nature, we are like Adam. God created us in an order. We are quick to want to move out of that order. We are quick to want to shift blame when things go bad for us. But God knew from the foundation of the world 
that this was going to happen, and he still thought it was worth the risk of giving us free will. That's pretty powerful to me. That means that God in the Trinity, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, even before man was here, I don't know how they did it. Somehow they conferred among themselves and said, if we do this, then Jesus, you're going to have to go rescue them. If we, do this, if we go through with this whole creation thing, this is going to have to happen. Are, are we, and I don't know how they did it. Are we good with that? But even within the Trinity, there is Father and Son and, and weighing the cost of free will. And I think it has to do ultimately with God desires people who voluntarily choose him. They love him. And when you see that whole model of authority and of headship, that same attitude is expressed by authority. It's always, it's always a, in a sense, a, a wooing or a drawing to. It's not authority. It's not coercion. But it's, it's that way of, of God offering that. And then in return, you see Jesus saying, not my will, but yours be done. That submission coming underneath his authority. So before the foundation of the world, this was in place. 1 Peter 1, 18-20 says, Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, he indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. It's like the plan was there all along, and it wasn't until far into time, through many ages, that finally God reveals the plan of redemption. So the plan of redemption was built in to this long before the foundation of the world. What does that mean for you and us? Free will carried the risk that man would fall, and man did fall. Well, while that first Adam, while he initiated death, Scripture says that, for as in Adam all die, 1 Corinthians 15, 22, for as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. So the first Adam introduces death because of disobedience. The second Adam, Christ, introduces life because of obedience and of submission to his Father's will. That's pretty powerful. 1 Corinthians 15, 45, it says, And so it is written, The first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening or a life-giving spirit. One brings death. The other brings life. I'm not going to read Romans 5.12. There it talks about Adam being a figure of, of Christ to come. In this whole process of, of headship, God, especially in God to his son, Jesus, uh, there's different scriptures, like John 3.16, very, very familiar to us. We know that God sent his son into the world, right, to bring redemption to the world. But even as God initiated the plan of redemption, the one who he sent, Jesus, still came with free will. I believe Jesus could anywhere in his life said, no, I'm not up to this anymore. I'm not going to do it. I think God gave him that freedom. Clearly this was the plan of God, but it was only going to happen if Jesus would submit himself to his Father. Uh, numerous places uh, Jesus talks about, I came to do, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me. The mission of Christ was, I want to do what my Father sent me to do. I'm not here for my own self. But he was able to submit himself to his Father's plan. Jesus 
in the garden as he was agonizing over this coming separation. Jesus enjoyed a very intimate relationship with God, his Father, very close. I think the, 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 the sweating of blood in Jesus is, a, is I think it was real, because the Bible says it, but I think the agony was he knew he was going to get separated from his Father through, through death to take on that sin. And God turning his back on him was something Jesus dreaded more than anything. And yet, in submission, he says, not my will, but your will be done. I already mentioned within the Trinity, you see this submission, this authority, God the Father. He's the head of Christ, Christ the Son, coming underneath the Father. There's just one way I'd like to kind of capture this, this thing as we go even into maybe some future teaching on this. And it's this. I think this is a model of how headship and authority in God's design is supposed to work. It's the way God did it in Genesis. It's the way we see it in 1 Corinthians 11. And even when there's, there's more talk about, uh, it's in Ephesians chapter 5, I think when it says, it talks about how, how husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. There's a, there's a number of comparisons in Ephesians 5. I'm not going to read it this morning. But so many times there it says, as Christ. So this is a picture of something, but the spirit in which it is done is always it's as Christ, either as Christ submitted or as Christ loved. And so for, a, for a, just a big picture to leave you with this for this morning, how does, how does headship and authority work in God's design? If it's not supposed to be coercive, if it's not supposed to be done by force, then how does it work? I believe it's, you see it just like in Jesus and his father. There's loving authority. God the Father was, was the authority in Christ's life or through all eternity. But it comes out of love. He never demanded anything of Jesus while he was on this earth. There was a plan. There was a path to follow. But he allowed Jesus to do this willingly. So God lovingly has authority. And in return, the response from Christ is, is glad submission. I'd be happy. I'd love to do what my authority asks me to do. And so think about this model as we look further on into what does this mean in the church? What about the roles of men and women in marriage? The husband is head of the wife. Our culture doesn't like to hear that. Why? Well, probably because they see it. When you, when you do this in a selfish way, it's destructive. Headship that's done outside of order is destructive. It doesn't draw anyone into, into loving or into bad submission. As we close, just want to, to lead us to think about this idea of, of how these relationships work. I've been impressed more recently as I've been reading through the New Testament and thinking about authority, thinking about the church, the language of the New Testament is, is interesting to me in how it talks about the church. You have God the Father. You have his son Jesus. When we are adopted as children, we become sons and daughters of God. We talk about brothers and sisters in Christ. The language is it's family language. And I hope as we go from here, my, my goal and my vision would be that we would capture this kind of a vision for our families, 
do we, do we realize that when God uses this kind of language, I think it's important then that our families, Christian families, are displaying this. And even when he talks about marriage, he says it's like Christ in the church. So a good marriage between a husband and a wife, when it's functioning well, not just orderly, but they relate well to each other, that's a picture of Christ and his bride, the church. When a, when a Christian family, when the father and the mother are functioning well together, when there's order, when the children are finding their place in the home, there's love, there's acceptance, and then there's also submission, there's obedience. That creates a picture of Christ and his bride, the church. So you see that theme in the New Testament. And I, I, uh, I'd like to refer back to that some as, as we go here. Our culture equates leadership with value. So if you're not in a leadership position, you don't get glory, you don't get applause, you don't get the spotlight. But what does God do when he, when he designates a leader or when he assigns authority? He's actually assigning servanthood. And we just last week, we had communion, we had the feet washing. I think it's one of the most powerful examples of what leadership is like. And there may have been those, you know, as the disciples were there, that, that scene in the upper room with Jesus kneeling before them, I think was an awkward scene for them because it made them uncomfortable. But one thing that was clear in that scene in the upper room, the disciples did not interpret Jesus' actions as him laying down his authority. There was no doubt who was the leader in the room that day. It was Christ. But he was on his knees with a towel, and he's the one that's washing the feet. So when we talk about authority, when we talk about headship, ultimately it is a call to be a servant. It's a call to humble ourselves. And when we see the model of how Christ and his father did it, that's the way God is to us. There's a humility. There's a, there's a servanthood there. And in, in return, we submit ourselves to him. And I, I hope we find that as we talk about the roles of men and women in the church, as we talk about some of these other practical expressions. Shall we bow our heads and pray?